welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to the 53rd episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you into our world of financial markets and financial planning and give you everything you need to know from the past week uh, in terms of what is going on in our world. So good morning to you, Matt. Good morning, Mark. You ready for this holiday weekend? I am. Yeah, it should be a good one. Looks like the weather is going to be semi-decent here in Dayton, Ohio. So I hope it's the same for everyone else uh, in other parts of the country too. Yes. Um, So as always, we will take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the um, just the first couple days here of of July and then for the year, the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on July 1st. Um, So the S&P 500 index is up 2.35% for the month and down 3.46% for the year. The Dow up 1.39% for the month, down 9.67% for the year. The NASDAQ up 0.95% for the month and up 13.17% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is down 0.95% for the month and down 14.4% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF X United States is up 0.51% for the month and down 11.26% for the year. The three-month T-bill yielding 0.14%, the two-year Treasury yielding at 0.16%, and the 10-year Treasury currently sitting at 0.68%. Look at that uh, number on the the, uh, small caps, Mark. I mean, just looking at the underperformance, and I think that's the market, you know, voting that they are or have been hit worse by COVID. Yeah, and yeah, and I'm actually I'm glad you brought that up. I'm going to get into that here in a little bit, but it goes back to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago when we saw the sector rotation from the tech stocks into the Dow and into small caps, and we asked the question, you know, is this going to last, and is this sign of a healthy market, which it is. But I think me and you both had the feeling that it was going to be relatively short-lived and we were going to see money start to rotate back into tech stocks after they took a breather for a couple of weeks. And this is a big reason why you know, a lot of people you know, might sit there and, oh, all I've done was invest in value stocks. And you know, we've talked about this many times in the podcast, the difference between a, a quote-unquote value stock and a quote-unquote growth stock. And Mark, I mean, value has been a favor for so long. And, you know, an adage that you always say sometimes is that stock is cheap and it's cheap for, for a reason. reason. <laughs> right. Right. And doesn't mean what? It can't get cheaper. Right. Exactly. Precisely. So um, I only really have one one thing this week in terms of big news and headlines. And that was uh, obviously we just ended Q2 earlier this week for 2020. And this was the best quarter that we've had, Matt, since 1987 for the yeah. S&P 500 in terms of performance. You know, it's kind of reversion to the mean. I think, you know, listeners that have been with us uh, for, you know, multiple months are going to remember us talking about, you know, a lot of these figures back in March. And, you know, they're time stamped. And if you go to our show notes at, you know, www.jessupwealthmanagement.com, you hover over that podcast tab, you look at our show notes, we were showing raw research from Bespoke that, 
you know, statistically, you know, the market was going to come back strong. And again, that was just one data point. Um, and then you and I were, had our own feelings that kind of supported that. But to sit there and have such a strong quarter, and you and I have talked about many times about the amount of people that sold out who have not bought back into this market, they need to have a game plan because they saw the market the way it acted yesterday. Today, it's going to be up nicely because of the jobs number I'll go over in a minute. And, you know, this train's moving. And if you think, you know, if you're waiting to buy that next dip, what happens when the dip comes along? Right. Right. Now, I think, you know, that it's pretty crazy just to see that, you know, in Q1, we were down 20% and in Q2, we're up 20%. It's kind of interesting. But yeah. Um, the other thing I got real quick, Mark, just the jobs number for yeah. June. So jobs number came out this morning. Again, this morning is uh, July 2nd. Payrolls rose in the U.S. by 4.8 million in June. Okay, and so what that did is it marked down the unemployment rate uh, by 2.2 percent down to 11.1 percent. Okay, and that's obviously far above the pre-pandemic level of three and a half percent unemployment. And the other thing I'll throw out there, Mark, is continuing claims rose by 1.4 million, and that. Um, puts us up to a total of 19.3 million individuals that are on current unemployment benefits nationwide. And that's something to point out too, is that the extra $600 boost in unemployment benefits is set to expire at the end of July. Correct, sir. Now, that doesn't rule out you know, Congress potentially extending that or extending it and reducing it slightly. I don't know what's gonna happen. Um, but I think that if they don't extend it, there might be a little bit of pain for short term for a lot of people. Yeah, Mark, um, I mean, I'm seeing some articles in regards to real estate. So let's say, for example, that it does go away in sunsets at the end of July here. You know, when August comes around, are people going to be able to make rent? Right. How does that infect investors who are landlords? And, you know, they're expecting that cash flow to make the mortgage payment on it. You know, I'm starting to see some articles that are kind of saying, how is this or how could this potentially affect real estate prices? Yeah. Yeah. And I think in my personal opinion, I think they're probably going to extend it. It wouldn't surprise me, even if it wasn't as much as $600, if they bump it down to the five or $400 extra per month um, or per week, um, then I think that's probably what's going to end up happening, to be honest. Yeah. I'll send it back to you. Um Okay, so moving on, the tweets, articles, and research from the week that caught our eyes. I want to start with a piece by Morgan Housel um, that he wrote on June 23rd, and it was titled Never the Same. So I will link to this article here in our show notes. So if you go to jessupwealthmanagement.com, hover over the podcast tab and click show notes, you'll be able to read this uh, article from Morgan in full. So I just wanted to um, talk about one piece of this, Matt. Morgan says, more than 20 million Americans lost their jobs in April, but incomes rose a record amount and poverty fell. The halt in business has been stronger than anything ever seen, including the Great Depression. But the NASDAQ is at an all-time high, and the story isn't over. And it's political, so it's messy. But in terms of quickly stemming an economic wound, the policy response over the last 90 days has been a success. There's been the $600 weekly boost to unemployment benefits, the Fed expanding its balance sheet by trillions of dollars and backstopping corporate debt markets. 
the $1,200 stimulus payments, the Paycheck Protection Program, the airline bailouts, on and on. I don't care whether you think those things are right, wrong, moral, or will have ugly consequences. That's a different topic. All that matters here is that people's perception of what policymakers are capable of doing when the economy declines has been shifted higher in a huge way. And it's crazy to think those new expectations won't impact policymakers' future decisions. So the point I'm trying to make here, Matt, is that people are going to expect this response going forward if we experience rough times ahead, which inevitably we will. Um, But my question is, will these actions be taken even if the severity of the issue isn't that bad comparatively to what we just saw over the past couple of months? I think it is a great point by Morgan. I think it's great for you to kind of single this out as a as a talking point for our listeners. And I would say that the the playbook has been established for either an economic shock or an economic slowdown. And you and I voiced this a lot in the past that if you look at the great financial crisis, the Fed and Congress did a very good job bailing out corporate America. They did a very poor job in bailing out middle America. This time around, it's not perfect, but they got it right. Yeah. And now the playbook has been established and it's going to have to be replicated next time it happens. Right. So I would absolutely agree with this. And I would agree with also the point that the standard is now established. Yeah. And, you know, everyone keeps going back to the economic books and goes back to economic theory that, well, you know, if the Fed's printing all this money, then eventually we're supposed to have inflation. The Fed printed money in 07 and 08, and there was a huge quantitative easing program. And the past decade, we have virtually zero inflation. So it doesn't always have to happen the way the theory points it out to be, right? You got it. Um, you know, I think eventually, will there be an effect from this? I think so, but it could be five years away. It could be 30 years away. Yeah. No one knows. It could be. And Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, has committed to keeping interest rates uh, low through 2021, which, as we've talked about before, is pretty unprecedented. To telegraph 18 chair. months of Fed policy? Yeah. So it's just interesting. And I, I think that you're right, though, that this is going to be the standard going forward, and people are going to expect this. Um, moving on to the next thing that I had was a quote from the Morningstar article published on June 15th by John Reckenthaler. Okay. And this was titled small value stocks, peril and opportunity. And this goes back to what you said about, um, the IWM ETF earlier, Matt. So, um, So John says, a glance of the characteristics of Morningstar's small value index explains the importance of the initial query. These companies are vulnerable. Even at peak conditions, most small value firms are relatively unprofitable, nor are they financially robust, recording an average grade of C plus on Morningstar's financial health measure. That's not too good. The market norm being B plus. These problems might be manageable if their revenues were recession resistant. Unfortunately, they are not. 
almost 60% of the small value indexes companies operate the cyclical businesses. Mm. So I think this snippet kind of does a good job of explaining why smaller capitalized companies are more volatile, especially during times of economic hardship. Yep. And, but however, with that, the increased risk comes increased reward too. Right. Um, so I just thought that that was, that was interesting and it, you know, it, it kind of makes sense to a certain extent, right? These, Why smalls are underperforming. These smaller companies, they aren't as cash rich or uh, they're not generating the revenues as like the big boys are, the Microsoft, Amazon, and Apples of the world, that they're going to get a lot, hit a lot harder during economic hardships. I'm glad you kind of pointed this out for people. Uh, the last thing I had was kind of just a fun fact from the New York Times on June 22nd, and it has to do with cheese prices. So cheese prices soared to a record high on June 8th when a 40-pound block of cheddar jumped to $2.81 per pound. You've got to be kidding me. That was a 181% increase from the low in April. Can I buy some cheddar futures? Yeah, I know. I was thinking the same thing. And this is interesting, Matt, because the increased demand, I don't think, could be coming from restaurants, right? Because they've been closed. So I'm going to make the assumption that's just the American consumer eating eating more, more cheese. cheese. Unless, you know, restaurants are, you know, gearing back up for reopening and that's part of it too. But a 40 I don't know, maybe pound we have, block of cheddar. Have a bunch of cheese heads here in, in America this, this month. I love the fun month. fact of the week. That is awesome. So I'll uh, turn it over to you. All right. I got a couple things that are quite interesting. First thing is... Um, listeners, there's five stocks that are a part of the S&P 500 index that are becoming more and more important to its performance. And I would like to point it out to you. So the names are Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, and Facebook. So Mark, those five names now make up almost 25% of the total S&P 500 index. So listeners, I know that, you know, you see S&P 500, you think, okay, there's 500 names in there. And I would assume sometimes that the perception is, well, it's equal. I own a little bit of all these 500 companies. And yeah, you own some, but it is, listeners, a market cap weighted index. And what that means is the larger the company size is, it proportionally makes up a larger percentage of the index. So now, listeners, you got these five names. Again, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, and Facebook combined make up almost one-fourth of the total index. Mm -hmm. Mark, any comment you want to make? Yeah, everyone seems to be like really shocked by this, but isn't kind of this the way it, it, it's always been? Maybe not as much as 25% from decade to decade, but you had the same thing when GE was on top of the world. IBM. IBM when, you know. All Exxon. The, yeah, I mean, you kind of had the same thing. So this doesn't really surprise me. Um, Just that you had a rotation of different names. Right. Over the decades. Right. And I think the difference between now and then is back then, those companies were very product based, right? And, you know, they would sell things and they would get revenue one time from one consumer. Now it's more of an ongoing revenue stream that these five companies are, are garnering, I think, 
from the America or from the world population is yeah. it's more of a service based ongoing relationship than a one time purchase like it was, you know, a decade or two decades ago. So. All right. So to build off of that, uh, not, and I think I'm, I agree with you. These are bespokes comments. And we'll see what you say about this. Mm -hmm. They said, and I quote, on a market cap weighted basis, net income available to common equity for the S&P 500 as a whole trades at 21.8 times on a trailing 12 month basis. That compares to more than 36 times for the big five stocks alone and 19 times for the median S&P 500 stock. Given their, and they're talking about the five stocks, given their higher growth and margins, we would argue that multiple is justified. So it's fair to say that the market as a whole should get a higher multiple based upon their concentration alone. What do you say to that? Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. I, I don't like when people say that companies are, are overvalued from a multiple standpoint because I've seen companies that have 100 times multiple. Oh, yeah. And the next year they do 100 percent. Yeah. So well, it's like the other thing is, like, don't get me started. We'll talk about multiples. We can look at Tesla right now. And it's a perfect example. Their their multiple is ridiculous, but they were trading at four hundred dollars a couple of months ago and they're at twelve hundred right now. Insanity. So don't tell me that that really matters. That's just for me. It's like a non not a non-starter, but it's just I don't really like to pay attention to that because to me, at least with my process or our process, it doesn't really hold much weight. And then I'll just throw this out there um, to cover us from a compliance standpoint. We are neither recommending or not recommending any of the uh, individual equities that we just mentioned for any listener on this. We are just pointing out actual factual statistics on those names. Um, next thing I got for you is a sentiment survey. This is from an individual investor survey. It's called the AAII sentiment survey. Can we get this on the show notes, Mark? Yeah, it will be. So on this um, uh, chart, uh, listeners, it shows how bullish the average investor is right now through this specific survey. And they have a percentage chart uh, mark for bearish, bullish, and if you're neutral. Well, I'm focusing on the bullish side right now. And we're at a pretty low point for the chart. The chart goes back roughly a decade in bullishness is only around 24% right now. There have been times when it's been over 50. Um, I would say the lower end of the range is somewhere between, I would say 20 and 30%, and right now we're at 24. So we're definitely on the lower end of this overall range, which has been as high as I said before, you know, a little bit above 50, all the way down to say roughly 20, and we're at 24. So um, any comments, Mark, first from your end when you see a statistic like this yeah well i mean everyone still clearly is concerned about what's going on because they don't know what's going to happen in a couple months you know everyone thought things were going to be fine by the fall but now no one really knows we're getting spikes you know in different areas of the country and i think this is just showing that people are still relatively nervous about what's going on and what's going to happen um and add but, a presidential election on top of it right exactly Exactly. So I think people are just worried. They're nervous. And that and I understand that. Um, but usually, you know, when you get this low of a reading and bullish sentiment, you know, it tends to be, in my opinion, a contrarian indicator um, and kind of go against the crowd on this one. Bingo. The other thing is, you know, don't you get the feeling there's still a lot of people out there who are you know, not in this market that are sitting in cash? And the question I have for you, Mark, is 
when the next dip happens, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, do you think they're going to put any money to work? Depends how big the dip is. There you go. <laughs> well, I mean, do you think the bigger the dip is, the more impetus it is for someone to put money to work? Or do you think that would scare them even more and say, I'm definitely not going to get back in? I think the latter. Okay. I think the latter. All right. To be honest with you. I th- I, just because I've seen that before. Exactly. I'll send it back to you for the uh, financial planning topic of the week, sir. Yeah. So this one um, came from the Nerd's Eye View blog, which is a blog written by Michael Kitsis and his team uh, surrounding new guidance from the IRS on RMDs for 2020. And it's really good news for everyone because the rules just got more lenient. Um, And again, our intent with this is not tax advice. You should seek out the advice of a tax professional before making any decisions um, about this. So earlier this year, Matt, as we talked about previously, Congress passed the CARES Act in response to the COVID pandemic, and that included relief from taking any required minimum distributions from IRAs and other defined contribution plans in 2020, for example, 401ks. The caveat, though, is... Is that caveat, caveat? Is that how you say That's it? gonna be our word of the week next week. <laughs> Could go so for listeners, way. you need to start following us on Facebook, uh, Jessup Wealth, and uh, we tend to do a word of the week, and uh, it's usually pronounced one of two ways, and we go around the office and everyone kind of says it the way that they prefer, the way they say it, and then obviously we post that, and if you uh, wanna get some popcorn out, just look at the comment <laughs> section, it tends to get a little heated with everyone's um, specific preference. Um, so next week's going to be caveat or caveat. I say caveat. 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 Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I had a squirrel with a nut moment sorry. there. Um, the caveat, though, was that the CARES Act was passed on March 27th, and many people had already taken their 2020 RMDs, which was problematic because the standard rule for RMDs is that once they're taken, you can't roll them back and put them back into the retirement account again, right? Yep. So to provide some partial relief in April, the IRS issued a notice which allowed people to put back their RMDs if they had taken them after February 1st. But the problem there was anyone who took an RMD partially or fully in January still couldn't receive that relief. So this past week, the IRS issued notice 2020-51, which grants broad relief to anyone and everyone who had taken RMDs this year, retroactive all the way to January, waiving the once per year rollover rule in the process. So can you explain that once per year rollover rule for people that might not be familiar with that? Sure, Mark. Okay, listeners, you are able to take a distribution from a retirement account once a year, and as long as you fully put the money back within 60 calendar days, there are zero tax consequences associated with this. Several years ago, listeners, there wasn't uh, a maximum one time a year. So people played games where they took money out of an IRA, put it back in 60 days later, took it back out, put it back in, and the government said, okay, no more of this. You can do it once a year. So again, 60 calendar days, not business days. You're one day late, becomes a taxable event. Mm-hmm. And it's every 12 months, correct? From that date. From it's that not, last it's not one they took. The start of the year. It's correct. So okay. if they do one on July 1st, Mark, 
they can do it on July 2nd of 2021. Okay, got it. Um, so going back to this, so this even allows an RMD rollback for beneficiary accounts of inherited retirement accounts as long as the rollback occurs by August 31st. So if you now own a inherited IRA and you're required to take an RMD and you already took it for the year, you can also put that back by August 31st. Um, so the irony is that the IRS relief is actually so broad that it appears to be outright contrary to provisions of the Internal Revenue Code itself that while RMD relief is welcomed by many, it may actually kind of set a troubling precedent for the IRS in the future, because um, if such rules can be ignored here, will the IRS have to grant similar relief in private letter rulings in the future? Um, so for the time being though, the main point I wanted to make was that for anyone who took an RMD in 2020 already and wants to change their mind and put it back, you have until August 31st of 2020 to reverse that RMD. And then there'll be no further questions asked. I like that. So, you know, listeners, if you might be sitting there asking yourself, well, why would somebody want to do this? Okay. So we have a subsection of clients that inherited an IRA and whether they want to or not, they have an annual um, minimum withdrawal that they must take. Why? The government wants to tax that money. So for a portion of our client base that has those types of accounts listeners, when that withdrawal comes out, they have to pay tax. And if they're not going to personally spend it, what's very common is they take the net proceeds after tax withholding and they put it into their after tax investment account and they keep it invested in the market. Well, if you could just put that money back into that inherited IRA, in my example, you avoid the taxes. Mm -hmm. So that's a reason why someone would do this. Now take a retiree, somebody who is older, who maybe has enough assets in their after-tax investment account or whatever income sources they're receiving, where if they took that withdrawal, they're not gonna spend it. It's just gonna sit in a savings account or an investment account, put that money back in and save yourself the tax bill. Mm -hmm. So in case you're wondering why someone would do this, listeners, that is why. Yeah. Mark, anything you wanna add to that? No, no, I think that's good just to to preserve as much tax deferred growth in the event of a, a traditional IRA, preserve as much tax deferred growth as possible, even if you don't need the money, because that's just going to add to your taxable income for the year. So, And I know Mark behind the scenes, our in-house pair planner, Aaron Kramer, has told us there is uh, some scuttle that they could extend this RMD waiver to 2021. Nothing's official, mm -hmm. but he has uh, read some rumors in regards to that. Yeah. And I can tell you this, if we have a true second wave in the uh, winter, I mean, I, I, I'd be thinking that could happen. Yeah, no, I could see that. So, too. but we'll kind of see Aaron will keep us uh, up to date. And of course, we'll pass that information along to listeners. Mm -hmm. But there is a potential for that in 2021. Yeah. And then one thing I guess I'll just leave off with before we wrap up here, I read an article yesterday, Matt, and I think you did too, about um, kind of what we've been looking for from Biden's campaign was um, more clarity surrounding what he would do with taxes if he were to get elected. Yes, I remember you told me this. Um, because in my opinion, and you can tell me if you agree or disagree, I think from Wall Street's perspective, they're going to be looking at Biden and say, hey, what is he going to do with the corporate tax reform and tax reform in general that Trump passed in 2017? 
and he came out yesterday it sounded like and it sounded like he was going to roll back a majority of that so that would be corporate tax rates he would raise from 20 percent, i think he said to 28 percent. so before it was 35 yes so he's meeting halfway there at right least. Um, but then also he said he wanted to curtail loopholes for capital gains and for stepped up cost basis when inheriting an after tax account. Now, that's a biggie for me. Yeah. So I don't think that's very Wall Street friendly, um, but the market really didn't react to it. So I don't know how to take it. I don't know if it was, you know, I don't know. I, I just wanted to throw that out there for listeners that that's that's what was said from from the Biden campaign yesterday. Um, just to keep everyone kind of focusing or bringing back to light that we do have an election this year. <laughs> yeah. And I think the last thing I'll throw out there in regards to that is um, I think Biden and uh, Trump have agreed to three debates this fall instead of the normal four mm-hmm. what uh, presidential candidates usually hold between the top nominee on the Democratic and Republican side. So there'll yeah. be three. Have you heard anything different from that? No. Yeah, I think that, that that's the plan for right now. So we'll wait and see um, when those dates will be released. Sounds good. Yeah. Um, listeners, I think the last thing I'll throw out there is earnings season. I sound like a broken record. Earnings season begins in two weeks. The financials tend to report first. As a reminder, publicly traded companies have to report their earnings every quarter to shareholders. So for the second quarter of 2020, which would encompass April 1st through June 30th, we're going to hear about their financial results with the uh, potential to hear about any sort of revised forecast or outlook mark. Financials tend to always be first on Wall Street. That's a lot of the banks um, around July 15th. And then as we get to the latter part of July, you're going to hear from a lot of the other S&P 500 names. And then the other thing I'll throw out there is we'll be recording early next week. We're going to be recording most likely on Wednesday of next week. All right. Well, if you don't have anything else, Matt, we'll leave it there for the week. And um, we'll be back with you uh, in the middle of the week next week. We hope you all have a safe and happy 4th of July weekend. And uh, we will be back with you for the 54th episode next Wednesday. Take care, listeners. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. 
Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.